Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Moses chapter 1 and Abraham chapter 3. And we begin the Old Testament. And let me just, as we begin, make a plea that those of us who are carrying the baton across the finish line understand how the race began. Let's have a quest this year to love and understand how the covenant began, how the race began. And we implore you to give this a chance and to love the Old Testament. I got to tell you, I love it. I think it's awesome. I love it too. So Moses 1 is coming to Joseph after the Book of Mormon's translated, and the Lord instructs Joseph Smith to translate the Bible. And a lot of the revelations of the Restoration that are coming to us in the Doctrine and Covenants are actually taking place as Joseph Smith is going through the King James Bible. And for the bulk of Genesis 1 through 24, he really is doing a ton of work, and it's revelatory. He's not using outside manuscripts. After Genesis 24, he shifts over and works on the New Testament, and then he'll come back to the Old Testament. So this is 1830, it's winter, and he opens up the King James Bible, and he gets pure revelation of something that isn't in the Bible. And so let's be clear, what we're studying in Moses 1 is the JST of Genesis. It's the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis that is so critical it was canonized. Only two JST editions were canonized. We have them in our footnotes. We have them in the appendix. You can get the full version if you go search it out in some book form. But the only canonized versions of the JST are Moses, which is the JST of Genesis, and Joseph Smith Matthew, which is a very important edition about the second coming and the end of the world. Those are the two canonized versions. So I want to begin by pointing out a very important reality that becomes a symbol of everything that Mike and I are going to do this year in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to ask you to follow along with me because I think this will mean more to you if you do this. Turn with me to Genesis and Moses at the same time. So if you're using electronic scriptures, have one page open to Moses and one page open to Genesis. If you're using the print scriptures, then you need your Old Testament open and your Pearl of Great Price open. So let's start in Genesis. Genesis is the Bible as it is. Moses, I think we can safely say, is the Bible as it should be, or I think we could even say maybe as it was. If Joseph is restoring what was lost, this is the Bible as it was. It's certainly the Bible as it should be. This may have never been textualized in the scribal circles during the Bronze Age or during the period of the monarchy. This may be Joseph Smith actually seeing in vision the prophet Moses having this experience. I'm open to all kinds of interpretations by what we mean by translation. So it may be that. It may have been written down and then later edited by editors of the Bible. Like, we just don't know. And I think that's important that we be in the space of when we talk about translation, that it could mean lots of things, and it meant different things to Joseph. But what we have in front of us is a text today— that is scripture. It's the Bible as it should be. Yeah. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 1 and skim over it. 
Genesis chapter 1 talks about the six creative periods. In the beginning, the Lord said, let there be light, all the way down to Adam and Eve being created. Now, find that chapter in Moses. Take a minute and open up to Moses and find the six creative periods. Find the chapter that begins, in the beginning, the Lord said, let there be light. You'll discover that it's Moses chapter 2. Genesis 1 is Moses chapter 2. So now go to Genesis 2. This is the aftermath of the creation. This is the God rested on the seventh day and the four rivers that flowed out of Eden. It's the trees in the Garden of Eden. And don't partake of this tree. And it ends with the rib, the symbolism of Adam and Eve and the rib. That's Genesis 2. So now find that chapter in Moses. Find what chapter in Moses talks about I, God, rested on the seventh day in the four rivers and ends with the rib. You'll discover that it's Moses 3. Do you see a pattern? It's not that they got scattered. There's a pattern here. Genesis 1 is Moses 2. Genesis 2 is Moses 3. You'll find that Genesis 3 is very similar to Moses 4, but that Moses 4 has a lot more information about premortal life and the council in heaven. But it's very similar to Moses 4. So do you see the pattern? Genesis 1 is Moses 2. Genesis 2 is Moses 3. Now, if Moses is the Bible as it should be, and perhaps even the Bible as it was originally, then what I want you to discover is that the Bible is missing the first chapter. Because the current Bible starts with Genesis 1, but that's Moses 2. Moses 1 is the missing first chapter of the Bible. And if you jump in this week, as you study Moses 1, ask yourself, how would the world be different if this is how every Bible began? How would religion be different on this planet if every religion had a Bible that began with this chapter? Now, what you're going to discover is that three main things are restored in Moses chapter 1, and they are a symbol of everything we believe about the current Bible and truths restored in the latter day. What has been taken from the Bible— And then restored in latter day are three things. As you read Moses 1, here's what you're going to find. The nature of God and his relationship to man. Number two, the nature of man and their relationship to God. And then number three, the identity of Lucifer and how he's trying to interfere between the relationship between God and man. Lucifer has been taken from the Bible. Very conniving of him, right? Lucifer's identity has been taken from the current Bible. It's going to be restored in the latter days. And this chapter is a symbol of everything that we're going to do with the Old Testament this year. We're going to take the truths of the restoration, and we're going to fill in some of the gaps and show that the Old Testament, in combination with the Book of Mormon and modern revelation, the Old Testament teaches the nature of God and his relationship to man, the nature of man and his relationship to God, and Lucifer is trying to meddle between those two. That's a really good frame by which to look at the verses, and you can kind of go through this chapter 
And you can just start checking these off and seeing, okay, this verse is definitely talking about the nature of the adversary or Satan. And these verses are definitely talking about who God is. So why don't we pick it up and start with, why don't we talk about God? Let's we just do that jump first? right into Moses chapter one. Just as a comparison of what we're going to find, when God speaks to Moses, notice what he emphasizes in verse four. The Lord says to Moses, thou art my son. And then when Satan speaks to Moses, he says, verse 12, son of man. Now, both of those are true, right? My spirit is a child of God, and my body is the son of an earthly man. But notice the difference. God is going to emphasize the eternal nature of man, that we are his children, and that the relationship between God and man is father to child. You are my son. Satan comes along and says, no, you're not. You're the son of a Jetty Dunford. You're the son of a mortal man. That's all you are is mortal. So God is going to emphasize my eternal nature and tie me to him. Satan is going to emphasize my mortal nature and tie me to death and disease and everything associated with mortality. Do you see the difference between those two? And you and I live that difference. We have a father who is constantly trying to help us see our eternal nature. And we have an enemy who's trying to tear us down and make us assume that we are nothing more than mortal beings that are a blip in the universe. And I love that comparison in the same chapter, Mike. Definitely. I think that right in the beginning in verse two, we talk about him speaking with God face to face. And then we get into the name of God right out of the gate in verse three. It says, God spake to Moses saying, behold, I am the Lord God almighty and endless is my name for I am without beginning of days or end of years and is not this endless. And behold, thou art my son. And there's several times in here God says, you're my son. I want to just begin this with saying, in the Bible, we're going to tackle a lot of ambiguity. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and in that language, there are some words, many of them, that have a lot of nuance and ambiguity. And so sometimes those words can, you know, they're translated in certain ways, and they can mean one thing in one context and another in another. And one of the big ones is the name of God. And we're going to, I'm going to geek out about the name of God, but not in this podcast because there's so much to cover. So to be brief and speaking on this, if you look in verse three, look at the names we get. We get the Lord God and then Almighty. That's a combination of a couple different words, probably um, Shaddai and Yahweh, and possibly even Elohim or El. And then we get this word for endless, which that could, there's a lot of possibilities. Like we don't have the original Hebrew text, but what we see here is multiple names. And then he says that he's endless. And then to add to this, and this is not, I don't think this is in the Bible anywhere. I don't think this is in any other theological system, but Moses one opens the idea that not only is this God the creator of the world, but it's expansive. We're talking about worlds without number, possibly worlds without number, super duper expansive. And he says to Moses, you know, I've got a lot of stuff that I've worked with, but I'm going to show you this earth. 
He's and, even going to say later to Enoch, he's going to say, if, a, if you could number the particles of this earth, think about particles. If you could number the particles of this earth, yea, even a million earths, if you could number the particles of a million earths, it wouldn't be the beginning of his creations. He's going to say that. This is how big I am. I am endless. You can't even number my creations. But we're going to focus on this creation, on you and this creation. And I love that they set that stage up, that he is endless, but let's focus on our relationship to him. Yeah, that's super duper important. There's another thing going on with his creation. If you look in verse 32, and I'm sorry, we're bumping around a little bit, but I think this is good to look at. It says, by the word of my power, have I created them, which is mine only begotten son, who is full of grace and truth and worlds without number have I created. And then if you want to really nerd out on this, if you look in verse 34, the first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. And Adam is a word that means man, but it's also Adam's name, but it can also mean humanity or people, the anthropoi. It's a, it's a word that means so many things. And I think what's going on in verse 34, I mean, there's so many ways to read this, but I think what the Lord's telling Moses is you're part of a picture that's a lot bigger than you think. I think I'll just say that. But verse 32 opens up questions as to who's speaking. Because if you look in verse 32, it sounds like it's Heavenly Father. Back in verse 6, he says, I have a work to thee, Moses, my son, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten, and mine only begotten is and shall be the Savior. There it is. So multiple times in this chapter, he speaks as if it's God the Father speaking. Yeah. And yet, we kind of know from other sources that it's really Jesus that kind of has the job of coming and dealing with human beings, and he's kind of the mediator, and he's the liaison, and it's his assignment to come. So who's speaking? Is it Christ, or is it the Father, or maybe it doesn't matter? Yeah, and I think that... And we'll link this in the show notes because I'm just going to sum this stuff up. But Joseph Fielding Smith talked about this with the concept of divine investiture of authority. And that's a fancy way of saying that Heavenly Father has invested in his son the power to speak as if he is the Father, to speak in the first person singular as if he is the Father. We see this in section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants, if you do a careful reading there. We see this in the book of Revelation when an angel comes to John and speaks in the first person singular as if he is uh, the Savior, and then corrects John when John starts to worship him. And so if we read it that way, then it could be the Son speaking to Moses as if he's the Father. But I also want to introduce some more nuance here with that word Shaddai. Like I said, we don't have the Hebrew, but if you look in verse three, Lord God Almighty, there could be some things going on with that that we'll get in later when we get into Genesis, that there's perhaps other ways to read this. Uh, Meaning, let's just go with God and try to not put everything in this chapter in a box. And I think that's part of our Western culture. When I say Western culture, you know, with the enlightenment and with things like, especially in religious ideas, we try to put everything into a box and be super duper literal with things and to try to pinpoint where things are. And I really respect that. I mean, that's how we've got to the moon. That's how, you know, we've done some great things 
with this thinking, but I don't think the Bible always works that way. Sometimes the Bible works circular or what I call from an Eastern perspective. So I'm okay to go with just God and not try to pin it down, but I've been in classrooms before where students say, well, who's speaking? And we try to pin it down and I use the, I call it my get out of jail free card when I use those quotes about divine investiture, but I'm really open to shades of meaning and think about this. Joseph Smith walks into the sacred grove and he sees God, but what else does he see? And so I'm open to Moses having that kind of experience, although it doesn't say that, but I'm open to it. But what I love is he's unveiling who he is. And he says, I am endless. Verse three again, he says, endless is my name and you're my son. Endless is my nature and you're my son. It's who I am. Do you see what he's trying to do at the very beginning? That I am endless. I am the son of endless. Doesn't that make me part of something larger than this world? Don't I belong to some heavenly system where he's my father? Now, I don't know how much Joseph Smith understood way back when he's doing Moses chapter 1, but this concept gets rolled out throughout the whole restoration about the destiny of man is to become what God is. And here in Moses chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, he declares that his Work and his glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. So God is endless. We're his children, and his work is to make us endless. I call that the mission statement, right? God's mission statement. We've got to put that very first in our scriptures, and we've got to put it first in our lives, that we are children of an eternal being who is endless. We are endless, and it is his desire that we have what he has. When I use verse 39 with teenagers, I like to have them read that verse and talk about, okay, we have this conversation. I ask questions like, okay, what are we? And then what is God trying to do? And then I think that therefore what is, how are we to treat people? How do you see other people? If we understand the value God places in each other, and we see that value. I love when Jesus turns to Simon and says, seest thou this woman? Do you see her? Do you see her value? And that's what's trying to come across in the very beginning of Moses, is that we are endless beings of infinite worth and potential. And yet the comparison is, do you remember how Satan calls Moses son of man? And he wants to emphasize the worldly, natural side of human beings. But after seeing the glory of God, after growing up in Pharaoh's palace and seeing the grandeur of mankind, when Moses sees what God is, verse 10, he concludes, for this cause I know that man is nothing. Which thing I never had supposed. I never came to that conclusion growing up in Pharaoh's house. I never came to that conclusion seeing how we on this earth play this game of who's better than whom and who are the greatest human beings. But then when you see the endlessness and the greatness of God, you realize that we in our current form are not nearly what he is. And we should long to be like him, not long to be like other human beings. I now realize that man is nothing, which thing I didn't suppose. And so do you see that connection between God and man and their destinies and their natures? One thing I want to add on that subject 
What we're going to get into next time as we do Moses 2 and 3 and then see that in Abraham, and we're going to see this all throughout. Anytime you are presented the creation story, whether that's in sacred places or in sacred scriptures, we're going to be taught this creation story. And we often assume he's answering the question, how did you create earth? That's what we think God is trying to lay out. I think it's because we're Westerners, and it says things like, on the first day, this happened. And so as Westerners, we read this and say, oh, he's showing me the process. On Tuesday, this is what he did. But go back to the question, knowing that this chapter is all about who is God, who is man, and what's their relationship to each other. You need to understand that the question that leads to the creation story isn't how. Verse 30 of Moses chapter 1, and you need to just emphasize this. Every time you go to sacred places and see the story of the creation, don't think what did he do and how did he do it. There's a different word. Verse 30, he says, tell me, I pray thee, why these things are so, and by what thou madest them. Why did you create the earth? So do you understand the next few weeks in Come Follow Me are going to be focused on creation and commentary about creation and the fall and the things that flow out of the creation of the earth. But instead of being focused on how or when or what, we need to ask the question, why did you create the earth? I love that verse. I think science addresses really well how things came to be, what happened, and they do their best to pinpoint dates, but we can't in a laboratory prove or disprove God, and we can't in a laboratory prove or disprove consciousness or why things are what they are. And this is what all the deep thinkers wrestled with for centuries, things like, well, what is love? What does it mean to be noble? What is God? Talk about contemplating the deep, going into the abyss of trying to understand this. And so to me, if verse 30 of Moses 1 was actually in Genesis as the question that brought about the answer, I think we would read Genesis different. But as Latter-day Saints, we have that there. Now, just sitting here from a literary perspective, let's not even talk about scripture. Verse 30 is making such a powerful statement. And I think we just kind of read over it. So I think that's brilliant. Um, I do want to say, when it comes to man being nothing, Richard Turley said this, philosophies abound which belittle man's position on this earth. And in the account of Moses, even he thought after seeing the creations of God that man is nothing, but God made it clear to Moses that man is everything. And so the juxtaposition of these two ideas, that man is nothing, but yet God wants to grant unto man immortality and eternal life, I think that invites a beautiful discussion. What does that mean? And I like, Bryce, how you said Moses was exposed to probably the mightiest empire on the face of the earth. And if the things we read in Exodus are historical, he was in the inner circle. And then he went into this mountain. This to me brings to mind the historical time frame of this revelation. And I think this is happening After Moses leaves Egypt, after Exodus 3, he's going to be introduced into the name of God in Exodus 3. I think that happens before this, prior to his return to Egypt. And the reason why I think this is because of Moses 1, verse 25 and 26. 
the liberation of the Israelites is yet in the future, but Moses one seventeen is in the rearview mirror. So if you look in verse 17, it says this. He also gave me the commandment when he called me out of the burning bush, saying, call upon God in the name of mine only begotten and worship me. So that tells us that Exodus 3 is behind us. The liberation of Israel is in front of us, and we're kind of in that time frame. Before we leave that idea, man can't be nothing if he's God's son. But it's the attitude that I have when I look at myself and I look at God, I think, is the heart of the soul here. If I think God is everything and I don't think that I'm everything, then I'm on that path that leads me to God. But if instead, like would have been so easy for Pharaoh's child to do and say, man is everything, it's the greatness of man, and I don't see God anywhere, and God is nothing. It's the attitude. It's not the literal nothingness of man. It's the attitude with which they see themselves. Another way I like to say is it's the comparison. Yeah. You just got out of the glory of God, and then you're walking in the desert, and you're like, oh, right? Yeah. So I think either way we work with that, I think— Putting those next to each other and looking at that's worth time. And it's it's going to be a concept that's going to flow throughout the scriptures. Remember King Benjamin says, I would that you should always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. And if you do that, he lists, here are all the blessings that are going to flow into your life if you remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man. Now, if you mix that up, like King Noah's going to do in the Book of Mormon, that man is great and God is nothing, you're going to follow a totally different path. So that becomes a major theme in the Scriptures. Do you see that God is great? Is it by comparison that God is great, or is it by comparison that man is great and God is nothing? So that's kind of what Moses is introducing here in chapter 1. Yeah. Helaman 12, 7, and 8, same thing, right? Oh, how great is the nothingness of the children of men. Just going to see that flow throughout the Scripture. So there's the nature of God. There's the nature of man. We're trying to establish the relationship between these two, and now enter an adversary who's trying to disrupt that connection between God and man. He's going to minimize God. He's also going to minimize himself. And so we have this beautiful little scene with Satan entering. And it's not a small thing. I mean, there's 10 verses at least dedicated to this. Um, Satan is the accuser. That's literally what it means, or adversary. And it's important, I think, that we understand that Satan appeared because the first time that he's mentioned in the entire Old Testament is not until we get to Chronicles, even though a lot of times we think that he's in there because of the Genesis narrative, and Christians look at that as Satan, but that's not what it says. It talks about a serpent. And then his name appears only 13 times in the Old Testament, and 10 of those are in the book of Job used with a definite article. And so... In the ancient Near Eastern mindset of God and his counsel, there was a member who was an accuser or an adversary that kind of worked for God. And we'll get into the weeds in this when we get to Job. And also in Zechariah, because Zechariah is going to see Joshua, the high priest, up in the presence of God. And then there's Satan, the accuser, trying to come in between them. So that's kind of a similar theme. That's his role. So he is in the Old Testament, not a lot, I think that the idea of Satan developed over time. I think part of it probably had to do with the editors of the Bible, which we'll talk about later. So much of it has been taken out of the Bible. But the Lord is putting this in here through Joseph's voice so that we see what's at stake. So we see that there is opposition. 
And I think that Joseph probably has a lot of personal experience about this. I think Joseph, as a translator and as a prophet, probably felt that this was really important to put in because of his experience with the adversary. And then I think there's an interesting verse in Moses 1. I just want to read it. At the conclusion of Moses' standoff with the adversary, when the adversary finally leaves, or the accuser, Satan, we read verse 23 of Moses 1, and it says, And now this thing Moses bore record, but because of wickedness, it is not had among the children of men. And it doesn't necessarily say what this thing is, and there's a lot of ways you could interpret it. I'm going to read this thing in verse 23 as the reality of Satan, and as who he is and his identity, but I'm totally open to, I know that this can be read a lot of different ways, but that's going to be my interpretation. Which is in harmony with the Book of Mormon, Mike, because as Nephi's laying out Satan's strategy in 2 Nephi 28, you know, that some he'll pacify and sometimes he'll say it's okay to sin, eat, drink, and be merry, just justify God. In that narrative, Nephi says one of his strategies is that. Verse 22, Nephi says, this is 2 Nephi 28, 22, others he flattereth away and telleth them, there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. That's one of his most successful strategies, is there's no devil, there's no hell, therefore I'm not necessarily being deceived by him. But God is restoring the identity of that adversary who's deliberately trying to destroy us. And he brings it right here into this first chapter of the Bible. I think it helps to explain a lot of things. Now, I certainly don't blame all evil on the devil, but I think from a theological perspective, I think it certainly explains some of the problems that we're going to see in history. That This Satan or this Satan character likes to stir things up. So let's talk about this confrontation between Moses and the adversary. What are some things that you see in here that are important to uh, discuss? I think as parents, we need to understand that our children need to know the difference between the glory of God and the glory of the world. And if they can understand that God tastes sweeter above all that is sweet, they will naturally shun the evil. And so I love that when Satan comes and says, son of man, worship me, the first thing Moses says is, where is thy glory that I should worship thee? Now, Satan comes with all his, the glory he can muster. You know he didn't come absent glory. But the comparison was what struck Moses. God's glory was so great compared to what you're offering me. And that's symbolic of everything that the world offers. The tree of life in Lehi's dream was sweeter above all that is sweet. The world cannot match that sweetness. So God comes into Moses' life and he feels it. Satan comes in, in and certainly brought a glory with him. But it didn't compare. So he says, where is thy glory that I should worship thee? I'm going to throw some nuance to that word glory, Bryce. I think that he probably did look otherworldly because he's not bound by our mortal laws and he doesn't have a body. And so whether he had glory or he had some kind of presence that Moses knew was not of this world, I think that It's good to note that there's lots of ways to look at this, and I don't know the verse off the top of my head, but there's a verse in the New Testament that talks about him as an angel of light, which I think lends credence to what you're talking about. Yeah, well, even in Revelation, where he appears as a great image or a great beast, and the people wondered, 
they wondered at the beast. So he appears in a form that causes people to wonder and be in awe. So he doesn't come empty. He comes with a worldly glory that compared to nothing is very significant. He's got something. But compared to the glory of God pales in comparison. So make sure your children taste the goodness and glory of God. Make sure they taste the good food. You don't know you're eating bad food until you eat something really good, and then your appetite for bad food goes away. Moses says in 14, I could not look upon God except his glory should come upon me. And I were transfigured before him, but I can look upon thee in the natural man. Isn't it so? Surely. He couldn't have said that had he not had the experience. He's tasted good food, so so he knows this is not good food. So people who've never had good food don't know what they don't know. Therefore, he says in 15, I can judge between thee and God. I have tasted God enough to know that this is garbage. I have felt the glory of God, and because of that, I know that what you're offering me is garbage, and I just don't want it. And as soon as he rejects Satan, Satan just throws this little tizzy fit. He cries with a loud voice in verse 19. He rants upon the earth, commanded him, saying, I am the only begotten. Worship me. He just is that big baby who just needs to be worshiped. And if we say, no. I've tasted something better. He just can't stand that. He's going to come back and try again, but we have to hold on to what we know is the greater glory. Um, I had a listener send me an email, and she said, before I listen to any Come Follow Me podcast, I listen to a certain genre of podcasts, and she said, it certainly was entertaining. But when I started listening to some Come Follow Me, and she listens to several, she said, I felt different, and I felt light. And she wanted to just thank us to say, hey, thanks for contributing to this. And I think that's what you're talking about. There's so many ways to apply this. I've tasted good food. Now I know. Uh, Now I know the difference. So this applies to the books we're reading, the things we're watching on television, what activities we're doing. You say to yourself as a father, okay, what kind of things am I putting in front of my family? Am I putting the good food out there? I think that's beautiful. It's a beautiful application. So clearly he doesn't leave the first couple of times. And he keeps telling him, depart, depart. But then, then he says this in verse 21, after Satan just won't leave and he's, and he's ranting and he's railing. In verse 21, it says, Satan began to tremble and the earth shook and Moses received strength. And this is a difference. And it says, and he called upon God saying, in the name of the only begotten, depart hence Satan. So there's something about the name of God, the name of Christ. And when he does that, verse 22 he left. And then verse 23, where we read, this thing is not had because of the wickedness of the children of men. So I think there's a lot of ways to read verse 23, but to me, big picture, the reality of Satan. And I think also the power of the name, the power of the name of God. Didn't Joseph have that exact same experience in the grove of trees? He says, just as he knelt down and offered up his desires to God, he was immediately seized upon by some power which entirely overcame him and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time I was doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God, wouldn't he have shouted out the name of God in that moment? Wouldn't he in the moment of that darkness have shouted out, Heavenly Father, 
wouldn't he have called upon the name of God? And the moment he did, at the very moment, that's when the light appears. So it's a very similar experience. And I want to talk just briefly about that. We don't turn darkness on. No one leaves a room and turns the darkness on. When you want to watch a movie, you don't go over and turn the darkness on. You turn light off. You control darkness with light. And if you can understand that, you make Satan go away simply by turning the light on. I can make darkness go away by turning the light on. As soon as Moses reaches out and, in essence, pulls Jesus into the conversation, the darkness goes away. Now, think about what that means in our individual lives, in our thoughts, in the stresses of my heart. I can make the darkness go away by bringing light in. I turn light on to turn darkness off. And that's exactly what Moses does here. One time a woman came to Elder Ballard and she says, my daughter is vexed with a dark spirit. What can you do? And I, and I know in some traditions they have exorcisms and they have these formulas that they go through. And Elder Ballard looked at the sweet sister and he said, have your daughter read the Book of Mormon. And the woman asked, well, why? And he said, because the spirit that attends reading the Book of Mormon will drive out the darkness. And I just want to testify for me there's validity to this. When I bring in the light, just like you said, the darkness fades away. And I love where Elder Bednar says a lot of times when we're doing this, it's kind of gradual. But in this, it's really stark. But I think a lot of times in our life, the light kind of comes in gradually or leaves gradually so that maybe we don't notice it. We dim the light yeah. rather than turn it off. But you can turn on the light at any moment and make darkness go away. I love that. Yeah. So after the adversary leaves, verse 25 picks up and it says, calling upon the name of God, he beheld his glory again, for it was upon him and he heard a voice saying, blessed art thou Moses, for I, the almighty have chosen thee. And then he's given his commission in verse 25 and 26, that he is going to redeem Israel, my chosen. And then he beholds the earths, as we've spoken about, and then asks the question in verse 30, why has this been done? And then we get to the passage that talks about the mission statement. I do want to make a brief reference to verse 37. The Lord God spake to Moses, saying, the heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man. So many times in the Hebrew Bible, heaven is in the plural, and we see this in the New Testament as well. And I just want to put that there and place it as a, like a placeholder to say, we're going to get back to that. But that to me is going to be tied with temple theology. So we're just going to put that there on the shelf and we'll come back to it. But if you go to the end of the chapter, this is what it says. Verse 42, these words were spoken unto Moses in the Mount, the name of which shall not be known among the children of men. And now they are spoken unto you, Show them not unto any except them that believe, even so, amen. And so at the end of this introductory chapter, there's this notion of secrecy. And there's this idea that there's levels of scripture, like esoteric and exoteric doctrine. And Hugh Nibley has spoken about this a lot. And he says that this is part of the importance of religion, especially amongst the early Christian thinkers, 
And then he says this, he says, a recent collection of essays entitled Secrecy in Religions has shown that secrecy is an important component in all religions. Speaking of Christianity, it doesn't take much of an effort to find examples for the notion of secrecy in Christianity, and the examples do not occur on the fringes of the doctrine of God's revelation. Rather, they point to the very center. Nibley's treatment of secrecy in early Christianity is valuable and persuasive. Later in Enoch the prophet, this is what he says. He says, part of the book of Enoch, part of its appeal, is its necessary secrecy. Revealed to the eons in the end time, it is a secret. It is a special writing, only for the initiates. It is given to you to write it down, says the Lord to John in the Apocrypha on John, and it must be put in a safe place. And then he said to me, Cursed shall be whoever gives it away as a gift or in return for food, drink, or clothing, or anything of that nature. Think about that. In that revelatory experience, John is told to keep it safe and to keep it treasured and to not sell it. Mike, it reminds me of what the Lord says in Doctrine and Covenants section 18, where he says, These words are not of men nor of man, but of me. Wherefore, ye shall testify that they are of me and not of man. For it is my voice that speaketh them unto you, and they are given by my spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another, and save it were by my power you could not have them. Wherefore, you can testify that you have heard my voice and know my words. It's kind of that same message. Yeah. I'm, and, and this is happening here. It's happening in some of the early Adamic literature and stuff with Enoch. It's happening in lots of places. And so if you want to pull on that thread, we'll put this in the show notes. We've got some notes for you. I do want to make this statement about the show notes for the Old Testament year briefly. In this Old Testament year, there's so much going on. We're probably going to make our show notes a little bit more to the point, and we're probably going to put slides in, and they'll be in PDFs. So a lot of these notes are going to be in PDF form in the Old Testament year. Okay, so now we're going to go into the book of Abraham, and we're going to skip to Abraham chapter 3. That's the focus for this week's Come Follow Me, is Abraham chapter 3. And just know that Abraham is different than Moses. Moses is coming through pure revelation, and according to the witnesses that were there with Joseph in Kirtland in 1835 in the fall, we get these rolls, these papyri, And Joseph Smith is working with one of them where he sees the writings of Abraham. Now, there's a lot happening here. Before we ever get into it, I'm just going to say that round picture that's in there, that's called a hypocephalus. And we will put in the show notes the work that's been done by Michael Dennis Rhodes. He's probably my favorite, where he explains what it is and he translates it for you. Bryce and I are not going to get into that in this podcast. We are going to talk about the provenance of the documents. We are going to talk about some of the criticisms of the book of Abraham, but talking about the hypocephalus could be its own thing. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to hand the baton to Michael Dennis Rhodes and let you read his words. And so we got to go back in time to when Joseph got these documents. And the provenance of the text of the Joseph Smith papyri come from Antonio Labolo, who had plundered a bunch of tombs in Thebes in southern Egypt. And among these, he kept 11 mummies. And then these later came into the care of Michael Chandler, who then brought them to Kirtland. And the church in July of 1835 paid $2,400 for the mummies and the texts. We purchased 
four mummies, and five papyrus documents, including two or more rolls. Now, how long were the rolls? I mean, Hugh Nibley gives a really long number and talks about how you could roll them into two rooms. They would go across two rooms in the mansion house. Uh, John Gee works with some math, and he says, you know, maybe they were in the 40-plus feet length, and they're described as written in red and black ink. And Joseph Smith said that one of them contained the writings of Abraham and another the writings of Joseph. Now, does that mean that one role had the writings of Abraham and another one had the writings of Joseph or that they're both in the same role? I don't know. But we know this, that Joseph Smith starts working with these. And then in a little bit in July and then October through November of 1835, he works on translating the text of the book of Abraham. In August of 1835, he goes to Michigan, so he's not working on this. And then he comes back and and works on it until about November. And then it's the end of the year of 1835, the beginning of 1836, that he pauses his translation and he starts working with Hebrew with Joshua Satius. The Book of Abraham is later published in 1842 and is canonized as part of the Pearl of Great Price later in 1880. Now, Segments of Abraham were published in the Times and Seasons, and I don't know how many members of the church had them and how many of them had read them, but by 1880, it's canonized, and so it's part of our canonized scripture. Now, Joseph Smith dies, Lucy Mack Smith has the rolls, and she's laying them out there. People can come and see them, and they can see the mummies, and then when Lucy Mack Smith dies, Emma Smith sells the documents. She sells them to a guy by the name of Abel Combs, who takes some of them to the St. Louis Museum, and that's where the rolls are going to go. The rolls are going to go, the provenance is from Abel to the St. Louis Museum to the Wood Museum, and they're burned in the 1871 Chicago fire. Abel also sells some of the documents to Charlotte Weaver Huntsman, and they end up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they're discovered, and then in 1967, the church gets these fragments. And so we've got these little bitty fragments, and the question is, you know, what are they? Uh, They're obviously Egyptian documents, and a lot of them are, they're burial texts in nature, what they're called sensen texts, or at least what we have, the fragments. And a lot of times students will ask me, well, what is a sensen text, or what is a book of breathings? These documents in Egypt were used as a temple text to help them navigate the afterlife. I think Hugh Nibley explains it best, where he says, these were temple texts and they were used in the performance of ordinances. They were an inventory of the holiest mysteries, the saving ordinances which were carried out or witnessed by both living and the dead. Nibley goes on, he explains that, quote, the way of the soul in the other world corresponds to the steps in an earthly initiation through which the hierophant had to pass in the temple during the years of his training. How can a mortuary ritual be an initiatory ritual, he asks? A mortuary ritual may serve to initiate the individual into a new form of life. In fact, an Egyptian word for burial means, quote, to initiate one into the mysteries. As his ultimate objective, the dead requests permission to enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple of Heliopolis on the grounds that as a, quote, elder, he has been initiated into the deepest secrets of the temple. Now that's a quote right out of uh, Hugh Nibley's book called The Message of the Joseph Smith Papyri in Egyptian Endowment. You can read it for yourself 
It's a dense book. But what Dr. Nibley is trying to establish is that these documents in Egypt were used as a temple text to help them navigate the afterlife. And so portions of these we have. We have fragments, JSP 1 through 11, and they come mainly from that group of texts. So we have a portion of the scroll that Joseph Smith has that purportedly led to the book of Abraham. And the text that's on that scroll that we've discovered does not match the revelation in the book of Abraham. And because of that discrepancy, some people are crying foul and say, Joseph Smith made it up. Other people are saying, well, we only have a portion. So Mike's going to lay out the arguments, but just simple story, the text that we found, which is not the full document, let's be clear, we do not have the full papyrus. What we have found does not match what's recorded in the book of Abraham. And I think all the experts agree on that. I think that's something that everybody agrees on. And I, th- I like, Bryce, where you just basically say, look, here's the argument. It it's really comes down to being that simple. The fragments of the text that we do have don't match the text of the book of Abraham. Now, to me, that's not a problem, but it's probably because I've noodled on this a few times. And so I'm going to try to take all of this and just lay it out as briefly as I can, but as clearly as I can. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there that use Abraham as evidence to prove Joseph Smith was not a prophet. And so because it's out there, because people are talking about them, we want to talk about the legitimacy of the book of Abraham. Mike and I don't feel like we can leave this alone. There's too many people that use Abraham against the church. So we kind of feel like we're going to speak out for the book of Abraham. We want to defend and be defenders of the prophet Joseph Smith and this glorious gift that we have been given that we call the Book of Abraham. It is phenomenal. Yeah, but there have been a lot of people that have struggled with their testimonies, and like you said, sometimes it comes down to the Book of Abraham. We can lay those arguments out, and you can decide for yourself. My position is that Joseph Smith is producing incredible scripture. I don't know how the process was done, but all I know is this. If you look at the text, if you just look at what is in Abraham, read that and then let that spirit distill upon you. And then if you want to investigate all the arguments on all sides of this, I think that's great. But I think if you get into the arguments and you've never read the text, that's a problem. And I've talked to people who've come to me and say, I have these really big concerns about the book of Abraham. And I ask them, okay, what's your question? And they start getting into it. And then one of the first questions I ask them is, have you read the book of Abraham? And so that being said, here are the arguments about the book of Abraham. And I boiled it down, Bryce, to three arguments. Number one is the missing text theory. And so let me just briefly lay that out. So the critics come at us and say, well, what we got from the Met doesn't match the book of Abraham, hence Joseph Smith is not a translator. And I think the church's defense, and it's a really good one, is, well, you're digging in the wrong place. You don't even know, you're, we're not even talking about the same thing because the roles of the text were burned in the Chicago fire. And so we've got these little bitty fragments. None of the fragments we have have red ink on them, but yet we have roles, at least two of them, and they're described as written in red and black ink. And so I think that number one is we don't have the the roles. That's the first one. Another theory is the revealed text or catalyst theory. Despite much speculation, the process that Joseph Smith is using to translate the book of Abraham is unknown. 
We don't have a record of Joseph Smith himself discussing the methods of translation. And we do have a quote, however, from uh, Warren Parrish, who was there. And he says this, I have set by his side and penned down the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics as he claimed to receive it by direct inspiration of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that he's taking the text and he's translating it the way a translator would? Does it mean that he, through a visionary experience, is having kind of that experience where he's channeling the divine? I think Warren Parrish leaves enough ambiguity, and I wasn't there. And so I think the best thing I can say is I don't know. So one possibility is Joseph did translate it, and it's on the portion that we don't have from the scroll. Another possibility is that the scroll was the means by which Joseph began to ponder and think and understand, and then revelation flowed, and what's written in the book of Abraham is not from the papyrus, it's from a revelation from God. So did the scroll prompt his thinking and receive revelation? Or is he translating word for word from the scroll onto the text? Yeah. Could the text have been a catalyst or could he have sat down in front of these roles and as he's working in the text, have it revealed to him? I think that certainly could have happened. Section seven of the Doctrine and Covenants kind of gives us permission to see this where Joseph Smith is channeling, he sees somehow in his visionary experience, a text by John, which he doesn't have in front of him, and then he writes it down. I mean, if you read section seven, that's kind of what's happening. It's the same thing in section 93. He's quoting the book of John the Baptist. Well, we don't have a book of John the Baptist. So where's the book of John the Baptist that he's quoting? It certainly exists spiritually. It exists in God's head, and so he could certainly give it to us by revelation. So there's several precedences here where Joseph Smith is delivering documents from a source we don't even have. Yeah, I think that's that's really good. I don't know. Like, we just don't have enough information, but it certainly could be a revealed text as Moses was. And like I said, Joseph is using translation in all kinds of ways. So we've covered two of the theories, the revealed text or catalyst theory, and also the missing papyrus theory. Another theory that I think this is important, I don't know if enough work's been done on this, and I'm going to call this the Jewish redaction theory. And what I mean by this is texts and stories from other cultures can be recontextualized or repackaged by later cultures, and they can even change a few of the things, and they can make it a new document or give it new life. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. One of the stories in Luke is Jesus is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus and how Lazarus is this poor guy and the rich man who Jesus doesn't name lives sumptuously, and then they die and they trade places. The poor man, Lazarus, is in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man, well, he's in a bad place. That story is actually a really old Egyptian story, and Jesus repackages it and gives it new life. Now, we see this, and there's a, there's a lot of ink spilled on this as far as that idea goes of recontextualization or repackaging, but we see this in some Egyptian documents and Egyptian stories that the Jews then use to teach their stories. Now, another example briefly is if you, if you go into some of the Psalms, there's a lot of Psalms that are almost word for word hymns to another God that the Israelites had some tension with. 
And some people look at that and say that the Israelites took those hymns and they scratched out the name of that God and they put in the name of Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to use that. And then they use that, they repackaged it for their own purposes. And you're going to hear me talk a lot about recontextualization and repackaging as we go through the Old Testament, but hopefully not too much to where you're bored. I'll, I'll try to keep it quick, but I'm open to this idea that the Jews could have done this, or I'm also open to this idea that some of the Book of the Dead texts could have contained other texts with them. So what I mean by that is, let's say you are living in Heliopolis and you have this Book of the Dead, which is a sacred document, that they could attach other stories or other religious scripture to that text. So just because the preserved sections of the Joseph Smith papyri are funerary in nature doesn't mean that they could not have had other texts with them or on the other side, because Jews are doing this antiquity where they're repackaging or they're recontextualizing stories and motifs from other neighboring cultures, and they use them for their theological purposes. My reading of the Book of the Dead is this. We see these documents where the person is brought into this initiation state and they're brought to higher levels of light. And my contention is that the book of Genesis big picture is kind of repackaging the book of the dead. Now that's a bold statement. And so I'm going to try to make sense of this as we go through Genesis. But if you read what Hugh Nibley's giving us out of the book of the dead, and you read some of these translations of what scholars are doing with this stuff, translating it, they don't have to be LDS scholars, just read it for yourself and then do a very close reading of Genesis, Genesis ends in an embrace where we're brought back to the Father. Now, I'm, I'm obviously playing loose with the text, but my point is, this stuff's happening. And so I'm totally okay with the Book of the Dead being attached to Abraham. And then you can get into, okay, what about the date of the role? So we got to say this, They've dated these fragments that we have, and they don't date to 1900 BC, which I'm totally okay with, and here's why. Abraham could have written these stories down, but just because something's written by the hand of Abraham doesn't mean that the text in front of you was written by Abraham. It could be a copy of a copy of a copy. Just like if I pick up a a copy of Harry Potter, it could be like the fifth edition, right, that's been printed in Boston or whatever. But my point is, it's still Harry Potter. And so... We know that this is happening anciently, that Jews are taking their texts and they're copying them. And so a second century BC document, which is probably what this was, could have had writings of Abraham on them. And how do we know this? Because that stuff did exist. There were actual temples in Egypt around this time period. I mean, if you get into what's going on in Elephantine, some Jews go down there in Egypt and they build a temple. There's another one. I can't remember the name of it, but there's Jews in Egypt. They have temples, they have texts, and it's okay to say, this is the writings of Abraham. That's legitimate to say, I have the writings of Abraham. But what we don't mean is that his hand touched that paper and wrote that word. Those are the writings of Abraham. So I think those are the big three theories on the table that I'm going to throw out there. And by the way, in the Gospel Topics essay, they're hitting those three things. And to me, if I had to pick one, if somebody said, Mike, I'm going to put you in a corner and you have to pick one of those, I'm probably going to go with, 
we don't have the text. We don't have the original roles. They burned in 1871. And so when our critics come at us and say, these fragments from the Book of the Dead don't match Abraham, my response is, well, yeah, it's because we don't have the roles. Everybody's saying Joseph's getting this off the rolls. So it's really something we can't prove either way. You can't prove either way that the Book of Abraham is or isn't what Joseph's claiming with scholarship. We don't have the roles. And if I were painted into a corner, I choose the catalyst theory because I believe that's how Joseph's mind work. Something he held in his hand triggered his brain into receiving revelation. And I'm very comfortable if the reality is that nothing in the book of Abraham was written on the scrolls because I still take it as revelation. And can Joseph call it a translation, sure. He calls the JST a translation, and yet it went from English to English. Technically, that's no translation. I think we're being a little loose with the word translation, but I am very, very comfortable knowing how Joseph has processed in the past that the scrolls in his hand got him thinking about Abraham, and that's when the revelation flowed, and what he wrote down was the revelation, not so much what was written on the scrolls. That's where I position myself. Kind of a subset of what you just said, Bryce, is another theory that some scholars put out there, which is Joseph isn't translating an actual text, but through this catalyst or through this process, he's able to produce what Abraham would have written if he wrote. And a lot of scholars call this the inspired pseudepigraphon theory. And that's just a fancy way of saying this is what Abraham would have written if he had written it. Or another way to look at this is this is what Abraham wrote, but it wasn't on the actual documents. Now, that's back to where we were talking about Moses. Like, what's Joseph doing with Moses? And I don't know. But what I see is I see lots of evidences in the text. If you just read the book of Abraham, and then if you really nerd out, and this is like its own other podcast, but if you really nerd out on, okay, what were Jews and Christians and Muslims saying about Abraham? What were people in Egypt saying about Abraham? And if you go down that road, there's an incredible book called Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham, Volume 1, by Tvetnis, Hoglid, and Gee. It's definitely worth examining because what these scholars have done is they've shown modern readers so many things about the traditions of Abraham because he was such an important figure in Judaism, in Islam, and in Christianity. And what they're also doing in this book is they're showing the correlations between these traditions and what Joseph Smith is giving us in the book of Abraham. Things like how he viewed creation, things like he taught astronomy in Egypt, things about his travels, so many legends that were going around that Joseph Smith did not have access to in 1835, but that later have been discovered. And my contention is, is that the book of Abraham is gold. It's great scripture. Yeah. Those of you who have people in your life that use the book of Abraham as a criticism against the church may be very interested in this book. And I think as a gospel teacher, I don't think it's necessary that you have to go down all the roads of the provenance of the text and make all the arguments and read all the scholarship. I think you can be a good Latter-day Saint and read the text of Abraham and take it on faith. But I also understand, and this is why we're talking about this, that there are a lot of members of the church that are struggling with the book of Abraham because of what critics are saying. And then 
we have problems. And so I think sometimes if we're going to read criticism, we need to read the counter to the criticism so that we can try to make educated choices. Right. Now, what I love is the whole point of this is the role of the Messiah and why we need a Redeemer. The greatness of the role of Jehovah as Messiah. And that's Abraham chapter 3. It's kind of couched in some symbolism about stars and the cosmos. So we're going to hear from later on in Moses that the Father's going to come and say, whom shall I send? And he gets the Savior as a volunteer and Lucifer volunteers, and I will send the first. And here in Abraham, we're going to learn about that same pre-mortal assembly. Verse 22, the Lord had shown me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them and said, these I will make my rulers. And he turns to Abraham and says, you're one of them, Abraham. And surely Joseph Smith was another one. Surely Russell M. Nelson was another one. But there was one that stood above all of those great ones. So verse 24, there stood one among them that was like unto God. One of the spirits in premortal existence had excelled so far that he was like unto God. To the point where notice the verbiage here, we will go down. There is space there. We will take of these materials. He and I think the rest of us partnered in that creation, but there was one that was like unto God. So do you see what he's done? Now, I've gone to the end, and now we're going to go to the beginning to understand the analogy. The end is that there were a lot of great and noble spirits in the premortal life, but one was greater than them all. He teaches that to Abraham earlier by using stars. He takes Abraham on a tour of the cosmos, of this great universe. He is not bound by space and time, and so he doesn't need to get in a rocket ship. He takes Abraham out and shows him the order of the universe. And he's going to focus on stars, and he's going to compare stars to people. So don't get lost. We're trying to understand who Christ is. So he starts showing him all of the stars. And there was one star that was closer to God than anyone else. Do you see the comparison? We saw that in Abraham chapter 3, verse 24. There was one that stood next to God who was like unto God. And now here in verse 2, we have a star that's nearest to God. That's how the Lord taught Abraham. These stars are a way of teaching him about premortal spirits. So there's one star closer to God than any other star. Verse 3, the name of that star is Kolob. So I don't know how it works in heaven. Does Heavenly Father look out his kitchen window and see a sun? If he sees a sun out his kitchen window, it's the star or the sun, Kolob. And it's a symbol of Jesus. I'm just going to nerd out on the word. And it's a Semitic root word, but it's in Arabic. And are the Egyptians messing with this? And what language is Abraham speaking? I don't know a lot of these things. But the word Kolb... And it, and it depends on how you vowel it, because it's voweled later. All the vowel points are put in later. So it could be kolab or kalab or kalb or kalb. That word means the center or the very heart. And so in that way, if we take that word, and it, I don't know, but if that word is the word that's put here by Joseph, 
That's a great word for Jesus. Yes, and it's a symbol, that this star is a symbol of Christ. Now, fast forward, long story short, verse 16, if two things exist, there will be one above the other, and there shall be greater things above them. In other words, there's kind of a hierarchy of greatness among stars, and Kolob is the greatest of all of the stars. So what he's trying to say is, Jesus is the greatest of all the spirits. Maybe this is the Savior's humble way and meek way of talking about himself by using stars. But then when the truth really is starting to come out, verse 19, now I call upon all the English experts out there. If you can correct me or enlighten me, I encourage it, but I'm just going to use the best knowledge that I have so far. The Lord said unto me, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. In other words, there was a hierarchy among spirits in the premortal life based on intelligence. And then this statement, and I think he says it humbly, but he's trying to be instructive. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. But he didn't say them. He said they. I suspect that in the English language, that was his attempt to say he was more intelligent than all of us put together. Jesus was more intelligent than all of us, not only each, but combined. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, at the general conference where he is sustained as an apostle for the very first time, stood up and he said some wonderful things, but he said, I just want to talk about Jesus. He said his poor tongue wanted to praise his creator. And then he said the following, I testify that he is utterly incomparable in what he is, what he knows, what he has accomplished, and what he has experienced. And yet he movingly calls us his friends. We can trust, worship, and even adore him without reservation as the only perfect person to sojourn on this planet. There is none like unto him. Now he's about to describe Jesus, and this is Kolob. Ready? In intelligence and performance, he far surpasses the individual and the composite capacities and achievements of all who have lived, live now, and will yet live. That is astounding to think about who is our Messiah, who is our Redeemer. I'm going to read it again. In intelligence and performance, he far surpasses the individual and the composite capacities and achievements of all who have lived, live now, and will yet live. He rejoices in our genuine goodness and achievement, but any assessment of where we stand in relation to him tells us that we do not stand at all. We kneel. That's what Abraham was taught. Don't get lost or confused in the analogy. The point is simple, that Jesus was the greatest of us all. I think the analogy worked for Abraham, but I think especially as Westerners, we read this 
and people say, oh, so you're going to Planet Kolob. And I'm like, okay, that's not even what the text is talking about. And so if we read it with an Eastern lens and we view the stars, that's what Abraham saw. And so in a lot of these ancient Near Eastern cultures, they looked at the stars as gods, people that passed into the next life and became exalted. And to me, the stars are a perfect example scripturally of people. We read this in the book of Revelation where the old dragon took his tail and he took a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. We read it here where the first 17 verses is all about stars. And we get to the greatest, verse 16, which is Kolob, which may be the center, right? And then you get to verse 18. And I call verse 18 the transition verse. Everything is astronomy prior to verse 18. And then it says, Howbeit he also made the greater star. And then we read the words, as also, and I circle that in my scriptures. And then after that phrase, as also, it's all spirits. And the highest or the greatest is verse 19, the Lord thy God. And so if we read it that way, we can kind of get past all the, don't get me wrong, I love geeking out about the words and getting into what those words are. But not being able to see what Abraham is clearly seeing, it makes it a little bit more difficult as yeah. for to, to connect with the analogy. Yeah, and you're hitting the point of, no, what's the main thing? I, I have a friend that would always say, keep the main thing, the main thing. And the, the main, main thing, thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. There it is. And what's the main thing? It's Jesus, right? That he is the greatest of us all. Therefore, we can trust and rely on him. We can know that the system works and that we're going to be in good hands because that's who was chosen to be our Messiah. Yeah. And I also think a big part of this chapter is that we lived before we came here, that there's this thing called the first estate, verse 26, and we're here and we kept it, and we were among the noble and great ones, and that we came to this world. I think these verses, there's about six of them in Abraham 3, shed more light on the pre-earth life than probably anything else. I mean, it depends on who you talk to, but we can see that there's a lot happening here with the doctrine of pre-earth life. I mean, think about what that says, Mike. If Abraham was taught about pre-mortal life and pre-mortal spirits, wouldn't that information have trickled down through the ages? This is not an unknown doctrine. And yet today, if you look around all the religions, you just don't see anyone talking about a pre-mortal existence. So this is really unique in theology to be talking about a pre-mortal existence where we were there and we were participants, and here we are on earth as a result of what happened there. So just pause this week and appreciate the doctrine of pre-mortal life that so many of us just take for granted, but so many people on this planet do not have in their system of religion. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I think because of time, I'm going to just nerd out on the words in the show notes. So you can just go and you can read, you know, I get into Shania and Kokob and Kolob and Olia and all that. You, you can go and read that stuff. And it's very brief, but I give you links and you can kind of noodle on those things. My take on these words as Joseph Smith is working with them in the fall of 1835, he's working with, quote, one of the roles. There's at least two of them, and Joseph's working with one of them, and he says that he's giving us the book of Abraham from this. We don't have the role today, but that's what he's working with. And then I don't know at what point he stops or how far he gets. My contention is he's got Abraham one and two and probably three in the books by the end of fall, and then he starts working with Hebrew with Joshua Satius, 
in January, right before the temples to be dedicated in 1836. And if you remember section 137, where Joseph Smith sees the celestial kingdom, that's happening in January. That's the time where he's doing an intensive Hebrew study. And kind of what I think is happening here is Joseph's understanding of Hebrew probably plays a role with some of these words, because a lot of these words have Hebrew backing. And so maybe he comes back later and edits it, or maybe that was also part and parcel of his translation process. I don't think that is what's going on. I think he's got Abraham three in the books before he meets Joshua Sakis. But I also think Joseph Smith can go back and do revisions because we don't get Abraham published to the world until it's put in the times and seasons in 1842. So I'm just trying to throw some timeline out there, but I'm also doing a little bit of sleuthing with these words and Joseph's understanding of God and his understanding of Hebrew, because this is important and this is going to play a role, especially in Abraham four. And so Matt Gray's done a lot of work on this. I want to tip my hat to Matt Gray. Matt Gray's contention is, is that Abraham four is coming after Joseph Smith has taken his Hebrew lessons from Joshua Satius. And I think that's a really good position. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I link that in the show notes. You can go and kind of study that out on your own. It's really good. Yeah. But in the spirit of that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, remember that the book of Abraham was written to reveal the identity of God and our connection to him. And that's what this week is about. As you study Moses and Abraham chapter 3, see if you can find the beginning of the Old Testament, that what was taken out of the Old Testament and needs to be restored by what we have been given in the latter days is the nature of God and his relationship to man, the nature of man and his relationship to God, and that there's an enemy trying to meddle between those two. That's our introduction to the Old Testament that's going to flow throughout the whole Old Testament for the rest of this year. And so with that, we will see you next when we get into Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Moses chapter 2 and 3, and Abraham chapters 4 and 5. Nothing to do there, huh, Bryce? And we remind you that the question is, why did you create the earth? Excellent. Thanks for listening. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.